Hello and welcome to the Food Freedom Podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Food Freedom Coach. And I'm really excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. And I'm really excited today to have another guest with me on the show. And today I have Anne Richardson, who is a registered nutritional therapy practitioner. Now, this is a fascinating podcast filled with so many insights and so much valuable information. Anne talks about her anorexia recovery, how she moved over from France and how her experience of being in the UK helped her to really kind of go on this journey in finding her own peace with food. She talks about French women and slenderness and her thoughts on this, men and eating disorders, how she supports her clients today, thoughts on wellness culture and how we can be best prepared to support future generations in developing a healthy relationship with food. So it's a great episode. I hope you really enjoy. And now over to the interview. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Okay. So tell us a bit more about who you are and what you do. So I'm Anne Richardson and I'm a registered nutritional therapy practitioner or registered nutritional therapist, we can say that as well. I help people recover from disordered eating and my job is essentially to teach people how to eat again. I will explain to them why they need to eat what, how much of it and how. Essentially, that's what I do. What else to tell you? I really dislike the term myth-busting because I think it's been banded around too much. But I guess my job is to clarify people's knowledge of nutrition and sort of facts from fiction. I often find that uh, people's knowledge of nutrition, when they come and see me, is always a little bit like a frame that's got wonky. And my job essentially is to point out, first of all, that the frame has got wonky, not the room and hand the spirit level to my clients and then guide them as to how they need to straighten the frame. That's my job. (laughs) Okay, that sounds fantastic. And how have you been coping, Anne, with the lockdown? How's that been going for you? Well, it's been up and down. Professionally, it hasn't changed a huge amount in that it's really easy to see people online. It's only a bit trickier for those who are the really low weight and whose weight needs to be monitored, but there are ways around it. So we're, we're, we're getting by. And really, I'm finding it's been really hard for people with eating disorders at the moment. So I've been fairly busy. Lockdown hasn't been kind on disordered eating. So professionally, it hasn't changed a huge amount. Personally, I think it's been really difficult for me anyway to juggle working, homeschooling. I've got two kids at primary school and seemingly running a cafe. I keep my family fed around the clock, it seems. And it's been testing, I think, on my own mental health, which I would consider pretty strong. I'm generally quite a happy and positive person, but there have been low moments and that's been interesting. And it made me reflect on how other people must feel especially people already feel down normally it must have been really hard so that was an interesting you know experience on a sociological level mm-hmm. yeah no thanks for sharing that because I think I think many people have, have kind of you know struggled a bit in lockdown haven't they has been sort of um you know a lot of mm-hmm. ups and downs okay so Anne um, you've been on your own journey in overcoming issues with food and body image so could you tell us a bit more about that journey? Yeah, of course. So 
I suffered with anorexia in my mid to late teens. And really the triggers were a combination of factors. I think the seed was planted well before that, probably around the age of six, which sounds weird, but I think that's where it actually all started. I remember being at a party with my parents, not like a dinner party where people know each other, but more like a festival with lots of adults around who I didn't know. And my parents were busy chatting away and I had no one to play with. So I was bored and I started nibbling on peanuts that were just there, you know, as an imperative. And they were there and it tasted good. So why not? And I must have gone several times to Peanuts because some guy, not even a friend of my parents, I had never seen this guy before, but he stopped me at one point and he told me that I shouldn't eat these peanuts or I'd become fat. And I think the seed was planted there because I don't think I ate peanuts for years after that. And then all the seeds got planted along the way and then teenage years happened. And, you know, teenagers are just difficult anyway just to work out what the hell is happening. And things were difficult at home between my parents. My dad is a difficult character. I would say back then, at least, he was a, very much a fattiest and very misogynist, or misogynistic, kind of how you say this. So I really spent my early childhood desperately trying to please him, but not very successfully. And I think unconsciously, there was probably a part of me that thought that I couldn't be a boy, but I could make sure I would never be fat, at least. And I use fat in a sort of factual kind of way. It's not a, a judgmental word. It's just what, what it was in my head. So that's, that was difficult. And also in my teen, I would say I was what I say, what I call in inverted commas, the fat friend of the pretty one. I wasn't actually overweight, but I wasn't the pretty one. I had this pretty friend who was just incredibly pretty, and I definitely wasn't her. And I guess in my head, being pretty meant being slim. So since I wasn't pretty, it must have meant that I was fat. If that makes sense? It doesn't really make sense now, but I think in my head as a sort of 14, 15-year-old, it made total sense. And around 15 or 16, I decided to eat healthily. And again, it's in inverted comma, what I thought was healthy. And I also decided to become vegetarian. And that was probably the start of it all. And it's interesting because I see a lot of girls doing exactly the same. And it's, I think you know that it's a known sort of element of disordered eating when people decide suddenly to change their diets. So that was me. And I became vegetarian. And I lost lots of weight. On reflection, it's actually because I lost a lot of muscle because I was eating no protein whatsoever. I was just basically eating salad. And as I lost lots of weight, people started to comment that I looked good. And so in my head, I thought, well, if I look good now, losing a bit more weight, I look even better. And I did lose weight and people said that I look better. So I thought, well, I'd carry on. And, you know, all the boys who'd never even realized I existed before were suddenly lining up to go out with me. And I suppose it was addictive, but then it was too late. You know, I only meant to sneak a peek, but I got too close and I fell down the rabbit hole of anorexia. And in a sense, I couldn't stop not eating after that. Mm, sure. And I guess as well, actually just hearing you speak about that now, it just shows how it's so seductive, isn't it? Because almost perhaps in the mm. early stages, it can almost feel like something really good. And like you said, you're kind of suddenly getting all that attention and validation and, you know, almost kind of praising your weight loss. But then it kind of went to a very sort of dark place later on. Yeah. And I think we often talk about control in eating disorders. And I think 
there is this tipping point where you feel like you're in control of your of your life or your diet i'm going to eat better i'm going to do this but very quickly you can lose the control and then you're not in control whatsoever um so that's why i kind of i have this image of me looking down that little like tunnel and i think oh yeah that looks quite interesting and then you fall down and then it's really too late and you're at the bottom and you know you, mm. you know it's difficult yeah no sure yeah. Yeah. And I'm really struck by for you, you know, it's sad that that seed for you was planted at such a young age, you know, six years old is so young, isn't it? To really kind of picked up that message. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And the power of those messages combined, I guess, with like stresses at home and in your friendship, you know, it, I think it just shows well, eating disorders are quite complex, aren't they? You know, and it's perhaps not a surprise in a way that you were vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Yeah. And I was talking to someone last week about that because she, She's a lovely client. She was saying to me, you know, I feel bad anyway because, you know, why am I doing this to myself? It's not like I've had a really bad trauma. You know, some people come and see us and they've, they've had, they've been abused. They've, you know, they've had horrific things happening to, to them. But that client didn't. She had a lovely childhood and she said to me, you know, what's wrong with me? I don't, you know, I don't even, you know, deserve this. And I said to her, you know, you don't know what your trauma must have been. There probably was a trauma, but for you, you could have been losing, I don't know, your rabbit or something. And it, you don't have to have a, a horrible life, really, to, to have an eating disorder. It's a combination of factors. My life wasn't horrible. It wasn't perfect, but it's not like it was, you know, horrific. I wasn't beaten up or anything, but yet the seeds were planted and, and it happened. Mm. So was there a turning point for you, Anne, in sort of starting to overcome these issues? I don't think a real turning point, but there were moments of realisation that what I was doing was, wasn't right. I remember once trying on a pair of trousers, which I loved before I wanted to go out clubbing. Then I put them on and I realised they were really baggy and actually they looked horrible. And I was a bit sad by that. So I decided to eat bread and butter in front of the mirror as if that alone could make me gain weight. It didn't work, obviously, but a tiny part of me realized that my thinking that it would work was completely out of touch with reality. And I think that was a moment I remember really vividly. And I remember once also declining a chocolate biscuit because I remember hearing myself saying that I already had one on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And I heard myself say this and I realized how crazy that sounded. And most people eat chocolate biscuits you know, you know, every day. Mm-hmm. And for me, having had one on Tuesday was just a no-no. So that was interesting to hear myself say that. A big one, which I don't recommend parents to do, but it happened for me. My mum stopped eating for a few weeks to shock me into action, I suppose. I remember her saying, you know, you must be doing this for a reason. So you must be getting something out of this. And I want to know what it feels like. And she didn't really mean it. I think she knew exactly what she was doing. My mum was really clever and very strong will. She was sort of, it was a sort of double bluff, I suppose. And when she did it, it was really awful for me to see someone that I love essentially starving themselves. And bizarrely at that time, I compensated by eating twice as much, mm. which was really weird. Eventually she stopped, but I remember that really shocked me. And all those little things didn't make me change, but... I guess they were also like seeds that were planted along the way, but they were slightly better seeds this time and they made me think. So not a turning point. Mm, okay. So it's interesting with your mum, isn't it? Because obviously that's not something we'd recommend parents do, but no. it, it's interesting. It sounds like for you, like seeing your mum not eating, that enabled you almost to take a step back and look at things a bit differently. Yeah. And I wouldn't recommend it, but I think she obviously knew me very well and, 
And that kind of tactic probably works with me. I'm a sort of, yeah, it's my personality. So she knew what she was doing and she didn't want to have an eating disorder. That's why she didn't do it for a long time. And she probably was eating in between the meals, to be fair, but I couldn't see it. It was an interesting method. How did your parents kind of react sort of generally to you being unwell? How did they sort of cope with that? Well, you know what? I'm not entirely sure my dad ever noticed. He never really said anything that I remember. So, yeah, it was, it was not a thing for my dad, I think. My mum, I think, didn't see it coming, but she was clearly alarmed by it all. And I think at first she did what all parents do. You know, she encouraged me to eat, to tell me I was beautiful, and I didn't need to change. But that's never enough. So that just didn't work. Mm. And on reflection, if I think about it, my dad was very much an ostrich. You know, if we applied a Mosley animal model, my dad buried his head in the sand. He probably, you know, he's not stupid. He probably thought that I was just, you know, vanishing. And my mum was more of a dolphin. Again, she had no idea of those models, but I think that's what she did. She swam alongside me. You know, she bought me the food that I wanted. Not not everything I wanted, obviously. You know, she she would never have bought me any diet stuff or low-fat stuff, but she she was happy to buy me any of the food that I liked. But she also didn't let me sink she was always there and I remember once I guess that's another story she um she picked me up from my dance class and I was wearing weirdly it must have been fashion at the time but a jumper with vertical stripes mm-hmm. and I remember coming towards the the car and when I got to the car she said to me one day if you carry on there will only be one stripe to your jumper and I guess it was her way of sort of nudging me into action to say that's enough you're sinking now I need, mm. I, need, you need, I need to rescue you. So I think she was the dolphin and my, my dad was an ostrich. It's mm, quite common, I think. Mm, yeah, sure. And really interesting. So, and then you moved to the UK, did you? Yeah. I moved to the UK in 2000, I think. And I think that really helped. I think potentially that was a, a, a turning point for me. Yeah. I think France was probably not a good country for me. In the 90s and early noughties, at least, the ideal French woman was slim, if not thin. And in the UK, especially in London, people seem to be much more accepting. So that was really helpful for me. And I think also moving from a very small country village to London was a breath of fresh air. Mm, Sure. So do you think that there there is more pressure to be thin in France or, or there was more pressure? Yeah, I mean, I don't know for sure now because I've lived in the UK for so long, but I would say so, yeah. Mm, sure. And do you, do you think, is there any particular reason for that, do you think? Well, I think, first of all, French women have a reputation for being elegant and chic and svelte. And I think if you're not that, you feel a bit like a disappointment. And there's this phrase in France that we use to illustrate a woman's role in the world, and it's be beautiful and shut up. Mm. So I think that tells you a lot about what women were meant to be like in France. And I don't know if you remember back then, I think it was in the early noughties, there was this book, I think written by an American woman called Why French Women Don't Get Fat. Yeah. And I remember reading it and there were lots of true things in there, but I guess it illustrates that French people and girls even more learn to, to eat in moderation from a very, very young age. And I'm totally on board with that. But there's a lot of the French eating culture that would defend. However, it gets tricky when moderation gets moved. I mean, when who says what moderation is? We generally eat small quantities, I think, of rich food in France. But what if someone decides that normality or moderation is eating small quantities of nothing or of lettuce? 
it doesn't really mm-hmm. work. And I think in the noughties, I felt like we were, the French were a nation of anorexic. It was normal to watch your weights. All the magazines were full of diets. My mum used to buy some women's magazine and there was the diet before Christmas, the New Year diet, the post post-Easter diet, the pre-holiday diet, the back-to-school mm. diet. Yeah. All of those always featured like a stupid half a grapefruit and basically lettuce. And so I kind of, yeah, I was fed that. And I was quite normal. And I think also many women in, in France smoke instead of eating. It's not a myth. I think a lot of women do that. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone has a problem, but I think it's quite common in France to be very, very thin. And I can pick them. I can, I can see them in the street sometimes. And I just think, wow. And it's not because they're really thin. There's a look about them. And I just, I just know they're not eating. Mm. And actually, what I would say about me is that the fact that no medical professional was involved in my recovery is quite telling. Mm. I wasn't actually considered that thin. I remember my GP telling me, and that was when I wasn't recovered because I truly recovered when I was in the UK. My GP said to me that I probably had had a touch of anorexia. Mm. My BMI was 15. I couldn't, I could, I would now turn down someone who came to see me with a BMI of 15 because they need medical supervision. So Mm. saying to me back then that I I had a touch of anorexia, he's saying, Ooh, you've got a touch of cancer. Mm. That's stupid. You don't have yeah. a touch of anorexia. You have anorexia or you don't have anorexia. I had full-on anorexia and I needed mm. help. But I was, I was in the skeleton, so I was all right. And I could walk and I ate a bit. You know, mm. I still ate meals, but I guess maybe their criteria of anorexia was someone who doesn't eat, someone who's, I don't know, who's hysteric. I don't know what they thought, but I was there. They didn't think I was. So I think that tells you about, about France and body image. I think, at least at the time, I don't know if I don't know now, but at the time, that was the case. Mm, gosh, that's so interesting. I mean, let's hope that things have changed a lot. Because I guess I think even in the UK, kind of, you know, in the, the 90s and the early noughties, eating disorder support was pretty limited. But it's mm. quite shocking, though, isn't it? In a way that you were clearly very unwell, but how your problems were completely kind of minimised. Yeah, it's crazy. When I look at pictures of myself back then, it it is crazy. I was really, really thin. Even at school, no one sort of said anything. Is yeah, it's, it's mad. Yeah, completely. I was glad mad. about it because I could, I could just be. But, um, <laughs> it's mad. Mm. So for you, then, was moving to the UK? Did that kind of provide a sort of a fresh start for you? Yeah, I think that was, that was great for me. I think it helped me in a way recreate my identity. I think it was scary recovering because the anorexia had been part of me for several years. And I think people knew me for that. I was probably known as the anorexic chick. I mean, I wasn't actually the only one, and that goes back to your, your former question, but I wasn't the only one at school being anorexic. We probably were a good, like, six. But I felt unique I felt like I was the, the worst one. And I think starting eating and, and gaining weight would undoubtedly have meant comments from people, which would have been hard for me. I remember really wanting to eat a dessert once at school, but had I done that, I think someone would have said, oh, it's not often we see you in this. And they would have meant it well, or they would have meant well, perhaps. But I think when you're ill, anything anyone says about your body or your eating seems like an insult. So I just couldn't do it. And I think once I reflected on this, I I think I would say that back then I was an Anne. I had Mm. become anorexia. 
that was my mm-hmm. identity. And so in London, no one knew me as being ill. I was just Anne, you know, the French girl, so, who just happened to be very slim. So no one scrutinized my eating. No one really cared. So I sort of relaxed and I got to know who I really was and what I was truly made of. Okay. And it's so interesting, isn't it? And just, I guess, just shows the power and value of forming our own identity and like really becoming ourselves for recovery. And it sounds like as well, that would have been much harder, perhaps if you'd stayed in France, sort of in in your old friendship group. Yeah, most certainly. I dread to think actually what would have happened if I hadn't moved away. I think somehow I saved myself there. Mm, Sure. And can I just ask you, Anna, how long do you think it sort of took you to fully recover was there a sort of rough time period for that i can't really remember if i started when i was 15 or 16 i want to, i want to say 16 so i guess probably five years altogether but bear in mind i had no help so it was all on my own and the last years i probably would add another year because it took ages for my period to come back but i was okay in my head but i was still a little bit controlling so we were probably five or six years but without any help, Mm. I just share sort of stubbornness. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah, so sure. And did you ever think about getting help in the UK or not? No, it never occurred to me, Mm. ever. The only time I I wanted help, that was much, much, much later. It was when I wanted to start a family. I was petrified that I wouldn't be able to have children because of potential damage I would have done to my body. I didn't have a period for years. So I was really afraid mm. of that. And I always knew I wanted to become a mum. So I remember going to see the nurse and telling her for the first time, I think it's the first time I told a medical professional what happened to me. And she was really sweet because she had no experience with eating disorders. And she weighed me. And I think my BMI at the time was 20 or 21. And she said, you know, there's no reason why you can't start a family. And that really helped. And so mm. off I went and, and I got pregnant. <laughs> oh, well, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So what was your journey to working and then supporting others and like setting up your own sort of business that you do today? Well, you know what? I never set out to work, out with, pe- to work with people with eating disorders, but I think it was meant to be. First of all, I had a career in publishing for quite a few years when I lived in London and then I had a, uh, what I call a quarter life crisis at, at 26. And I decided to overall my, my life and to retrain as a nutritionist. And I was totally recovered by then, but I was getting quite interested in the power of food and I, I like cooking. So I wanted to do something around that. And I also wanted more of my job. I, I wanted to help people. And I think that's kind of my personality. I wanted to leave some kind of legacy, I suppose, not just make money. So... Again, off I went at 26, I decided to retrain as a nutritionist while also having a newborn baby, which seemed like a really good idea at the time, but wasn't. <laughs> but somehow I made it. And I remember once a tutor asking if anyone in the, in the room wanted to work with eating disorders. And I, I remember me thinking, hell no. I mean, done this, been there. I'm not going back to that. I can leave it to other people. And I also remember another tutor saying, you know what, you will end up getting the cases that you hate the most at first, the ones you really don't want. And I remember thinking, that sounds awful. And, uh, and, he also, and she also said, eventually the people will come to you for a reason. So you will see the people that you can help. And it sounded really bonkers at the time. But yet I remember it and it was a long time ago. 
And I started as a generalist. So I, I saw people who were just tired, you know, diabetes and all sorts of people. And I did see cases of people with disordered eating and I turned them down because I wasn't qualified to help them. But I also could see a lot of people were coming to me with really weird food habits. And when I dug down a little bit, it, remembered, it reminded me of things that I, I used to do when I was ill. So I kind of knew that I had to further my, my training in eating disorder. I remember this woman or quite a few, quite a few people saying something similar. I remember looking at food diaries and, and seeing no bread. And I would say to people, so, you know, how come you eat no bread? And they go, oh, I can't eat bread. And I go, okay, well, you're celiac then. And they go, no, no, I'm not celiac. But, you know, if I buy bread, I will eat it. And I remember me thinking, isn't that what you're supposed to do with bread? I, I don't, I haven't missed something, you know, <laughs> well, what's the deal? And they said, no, no, you don't understand. If I buy bread, I eat it all. And, you know, I could see people being quite obsessive. They had really rigid rules about eating. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's not normal. And I just knew I had to, I had to somehow retrain, not totally, but sort of further my training to be able to work with disordered eating. And that's what I did. Mm. so it sounds like your clients kind of found you didn't they <laughs> yeah I think I had disclosed on my website that I'd had an eating disorder I don't know why I felt that I needed to say that but I guess I did and I think people just then came to me so I don't know maybe I, I wanted to work with disordered eating I don't know but yeah they, mm. I think people found me yeah you're obviously doing the right job now aren't you <laughs> I think um, so I think I'm in the right place tell us a bit more as well about how you work with your clients Okay, so I think, as I said before, my, my job is to teach people how to eat again. I'm, I'm there to untangle nutrition myths and really hold my clients' hands so that they get to where they need to be. And really the bulk of my work is based around nutrition, but we will also touch on behavioral aspects of their disorder. I always recommend that my clients should receive psychological and medical support too. I think it wouldn't be fair to say that I alone could help them. I think we need a team. I feel quite strongly about that. In respect to how I work, I would say I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I love words and metaphors, and I think that comes from my previous training, I suppose. And I think my clients would probably say that I use them a lot. And I think if someone doesn't like that, they probably can't work with me. It would drive them mad. I think I draw a lot of my personal, on my personal life too in sessions, not to talk about myself, but I find it helpful to illustrate my points with real life because I find that from experience it's much easier for people to remember a story than hard facts. I think at the beginning I made the mistake of essentially sort of punching my clients drunk with biochemistry and telling them about adenosine and neurotransmitters and stuff. And I think some people want that, but a lot of people actually don't or won't be able to remember. So I need to sort of somehow mingle the two. So I use I use stories for that. And I think it helps people draw similarities with their lives and dig into their memories a little bit and perhaps open up. That's my, my way of looking at things. Mm. I think the power of storytelling is so incredible, isn't it? Could you share an example of a metaphor or a story that you use in your work? Okay. Well, it's difficult because, first of all, I think I've used quite a few already <laughs> when I'm talking to you. It's difficult. So I tend to come up with them in the moment. It just uh, it comes up and sometimes it really doesn't work. And I have to say, actually backtrack it doesn't work but hang on let me just share one that I remember I was telling a client that the way she was looking at the situation was just one way of looking at it and not necessarily the reality of the situation so I asked her to consider her house 
like all of us, you know, she knows what her house looks like from the front, you know, the number and the street and the curb, etc. But what about from the back? The view from the house, uh, the view of the house is different from the back, and she might not even recognize her house from there because how often do you look at your house from the back? Yet it's still her house. So the angle doesn't change the reality, only our perception. So I asked her to look at what we were discussing from a different angle. And by doing that, she accepted what we were talking about and she accepted to try the food. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, no, I love it. Actually, I, I remember I've watched one of your videos or something or something before, but I've, I've noticed that, you know, I do really love your use of stories and metaphors because I think they just do really stick, don't they? Whereas like a whole load of facts sometimes they just kind of wash over you, don't they? Yeah, I think so. And maybe maybe that's also how I remember things personally. Mm. And, but yeah, I think facts can, depending on who you talk to, it depends on your audience yeah. really. But, you know, we're also talking to people who are essentially malnourished. So the brains aren't necessarily working very well. So telling them about lots of facts is not, it might not be the way forward. I find that stories help better. But as I said, it's, it's my way of working. It might not work for everyone. Mm, sure. Okay. So, and what does a client's journey look like when they're working with you? Okay. So usually it starts with a chat on the phone, just a quick chat to sort of, you know, see, you know, whether we want to give it a go. And then I usually have a, a session, the first session with the person so that we really just get to know each other and so that we both decide if we're a good fit. Again, I think in the first session, you know, I will be able to tell whether I can help the person and they will be able to tell whether they like me. They will see from the first session that I'm a metaphor kind of girl. And if they don't like that, I say to them, it's totally fine. You don't have to ever come back. I'm quite open about that because, you know, what's the point of committing to sessions with me if you think, oh my God, her accent is really annoying, her metaphors are just cringeworthy, you know. It's not going mm. to work. It's really personal to talk about your eating and your life. So you need to be really comfortable with the person. So after this session, we then decide, I leave the client to decide whether they want to work with me. And then after that, we work in collaboration. So I really go at their pace. I think I'm, I'm friendly, but not your friend. My job is to help you, but not to let you drift. So I will also push you. I will ask you the questions you don't want me to ask. I won't forget the homework you didn't do. And I will put my finger where it hurts sometimes because that's my job. I'm not there to rescue you. I think, again, again, it's another metaphor. I can't help it. But I guess my job is to kind of light up the tunnel so mm. that you can find your own way out. I can't do the job for you because it's not going to work. So, yeah, I think that's kind of that's my way of working. And, and I would say that I work with clients for usually a few months, sometimes more. It really depends on on the person and what they're coming to me with and how they respond to the homework. As I said, I give homework to people in between sessions. They're not essays, but a little bits to do because the sessions with me are good, but really it's what you do in between the sessions that really matter. So again, it's the tunnel, the analogy or the metaphor with the tunnel, you know, I want them to find their own way out. I don't have set protocols. All clients are different and they come with their personal story. I think the goals tend to be the same or the goal tends to be the same, but the path we'll take is going to be different and it's going to be more or less winding. So some people will get there a lot quicker and others will take longer, but it doesn't mean they're, fa they're failing. It just means that perhaps they came when they were not ready or, you know, it depends on their story really, on their journey. 
Mm, okay, well, thank you for sharing that. And, and do you work with men as well as women in your, you know, in your business? Yes, I don't see men as frequently as I see women, but I do see them. And I probably don't see them because, you know, it's not, maybe it's more of a taboo still, male eating disorder. I don't know what you think, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely, I know in, in our clinic, we see many more women than men. But yes, I mean, obviously, we know that men get eating disorders too. But I think there's, there is still a stigma and maybe sometimes it's kind of hidden more in, in the gym and kind of, I guess there's often more of a kind of drive to exercise. So yeah. eating disorder can get hidden, can't it? I think perhaps, you know, when someone looks outwardly very kind of, in inverted commas, healthy. Yeah, I think sometimes it's, it's even more difficult for men, actually, because I think an eating disorder is supposed to be a girl thing, isn't it? There can be lots of shame, I think, for men to admit that they have an eating disorder for that reason. And I think some of them also start to question their sexuality. I mean, I've heard people say, you know, it doesn't mean I'm gay if I've got a chick's disease. It's also confusing often for men because often they want to get bigger, not smaller. So they may not even realize that there is anything wrong with them, as you said. And they would certainly not identify it as an eating disorder. Yeah, Sure. And yeah. it's interesting, isn't it, as well? Because I think so much of the kind of literature and like media kind of posts on this kind of thing are still very much kind of focused more on the female experience, aren't they? So men might just not identify with it at all, really. Um, yeah, even modern textbooks that I read often refer to the client as a young girl, you know, like a young adolescent girl. I mean, that's not the case at all. You know, I have clients in there in their 60s, they're female, but nonetheless, I've had men clients, you know, you have children, it's very varied. You can't just say that it's just a sort of middle-class, white, teenage girl's disease. It's just really not the case. And I'm actually quite interested in male eating disorders. And I think perhaps because I'm a mum of boys, and I suppose I'm acutely aware that boys have their own struggles. So I'm more perhaps on the lookout. Often people say to me, oh, you'll be okay, because you've got boys, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And I think, that's not true, actually. It starts from a very, very young age. And maybe a little bit like my story. I remember my eldest, who is almost 11, but when he was seven, at the time he came back from school telling me he really wanted a six-pack like one of his friends. He didn't really know what a six-pack was, but he knew he didn't have one and that he wanted one. And that was really scary. And perhaps a year later that, I saw him lift his top and looking at his reflection in the window, sucking his tummy and asking me whether I thought he was fat. And that really freaked me out. Bear in mind that we are in a house where we don't talk about calories or weight or that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not a taboo. If they want to talk about it, they can talk about yeah. it. But they don't, they don't hear me say, oh, this has X amount of calorie. I must be careful. And my bum looks big. You know, that's never heard in my house. Mm. So that was really scary for me because it clearly came from somewhere and he was a boy and he was little and yeah that really scared me and don't even get me started on superhero costumes because we'll be there forever <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah so he's such good points though actually because I think you know I've got three children I've got a girl and two boys and one of my boys was really quite triggered after healthy week at school and wanting to cut yeah. out all sugar and I'd been really surprised because my daughter had been through that quite happily and not you know not responding in an unhelpful way and you know he really took it on board so I mean such an important point isn't it like boys do get eating disorders too or can be at risk and we need yeah just make sure we're supporting them you know as well yeah. 
And I think even now, I think that the sort of the male image has become a lot more important than, you know, even when I was growing up. And it's not that long ago. I think men didn't really question, you know, or boys didn't really question their appearance that much. Whereas now they really do. I remember going to a school to do a talk and there was like a bunch of like six formers behind me. They really nicely opened the door for me. And I heard that they were talking about biceps curls. And it made me kind of chuckle a little bit, but in a, in, not in a nice way, because I thought, wow, back then when I was at school, boys didn't talk about bicep curls. I'm pretty sure of that. But now they feel like they have to look in a certain way. They have to have that triangular shape. And men also buy more magazines and not just like the men's magazine, like magazines for men with men in it, of you know, scantily clad men. And they sort of look at themselves and think, holy Christ, I, I don't look like this. You know, I've got love handles and I'm not tanned. And I think it's harder for men now. They have to look beautiful as well. Mm, yeah, so true. Mm. So true. So what messages do you find to be most damaging around nutrition in the kind of whole wellness world? I think that there are good and bad foods. That drives me mad. That doesn't exist. And I think the problem with nutrition is that everyone eats but it doesn't mean that everyone is an expert in nutrition. Nutrition is actually quite complex. I remember going to nutrition college and thinking I knew it all. And you know, when I left like four years after, I remember thinking, actually, I have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, which was a bit unfair. But it's really complicated. And so just reducing foods to good and bad category is, is just wrong. And for me, it's a recipe for disaster. So that's the first message, I think. And also the second message would be that thin equals healthy. And I, and I will sort of draw you back to when I was really little. I remember my mum was very, very slim. And I remember saying to her, mummy, you're really thin. And I think she was a bit shocked by that. And she said, I'm not thin, I'm slim. But I remember in my head, slim was good. So, and thin was more than slim. So therefore thin must be better. It was already there in my, in my head. And, and I think it's, it's, that message is even more prevalent now. And a lot of people think that thin is healthy. And if you look at people in the media, they are getting thinner and thinner. And these people are celebrated. So we automatically think that we have to look like them. But thin doesn't mean healthy at all. And in fact, it's often healthier to be a bit overweight than a bit underweight. And what I always say to my clients, you know, if there is an apocalypse tomorrow, the bigger people will make it, you know, the thinner people won't make it because, you know, there's nothing to, to eat, you know, they'll have a bit more. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to carry a bit of weight. It doesn't mean that you're unhealthy necessarily. It depends on genetic as well. And looking at just your BMI as your measure of health is, is really reductive, I think, because your BMI is only one measure of health. There are lots of other factors that will determine your overall health. You can have a good BMI and have high blood pressure. You could have an okay BMI and have diabetes. Does that mean you're healthy? Not necessarily. You could also have a BMI of 27 and have no high blood pressure, be super fit. So it doesn't really, I'm not going to say it means nothing. It, it, it has a value, but it's not the only value. Yeah, sure. No, great points there. So what advice would you give to people seeking to improve their nutrition in a helpful way? Okay, so the first thing would be to not cut anything out without knowing whether you need to or not. 
I see lots of people doing that all the time. They cut out wheat, dairy, gluten, whatever. I mean, these are the main offenders, but other stuff as well. And you can actually create problems while doing that. You can create things called secondary intolerances when you do that, whereby your body gets unused to digesting those foods. And then when you reintroduce them, you just have real problems digesting them. And that's when you see, go into your gastroenterologist and, and they say, oh, you probably have a problem and we'll put you on an elimination diet or a FODMAP diet. And then it creates more problem and then it's just a nightmare to solve. So don't do that. I would say if you want to change your nutrition, go and see a professional. Go and see a dietitian, a registered nutritionist, or a registered nutritional therapy practitioner. But go and see someone who's qualified. Be careful of people who aren't adequately trained. It doesn't mean that they're all rubbish, but there are lots of people in nutrition who aren't trained. Seeing a qualified nutritionist, a certified nutritionist, or things like that actually means nothing. So be careful, you need, they need to have had some kind of formal training, not just sort of like a few hours on the internet. And it's all the more important when we're talking about disordered eating. Even a general nutritionist won't have the required knowledge to help someone with an eating disorder. And it's not a criticism, it's a fact. I was one of them before. And as I said earlier, I see so many people whose symptoms have got worse because they were told that they should go on a FODMAP diet because they had digestive problems. And people don't often disclose that they have a, an eating disorder when they go and see a generalist. And so the, the eating, the digestive problem was probably caused by the distorted eating because it's a well-known sort of symptom. But if you then introduce like a, an elimination diet, you make the problem worse and obviously you're not sorting the true problem. So you have to be careful. If you've got, if you know deep down that you've got a problem with your eating, you need to see someone who is qualified to deal with disordered eating. And I also say that there's a difference between someone having had an eating disorder and someone having the ability to help you to recover from an eating disorder. I mean, I've had an eating disorder, but it's, that's not my experience that makes me able to help people before I had training, I wouldn't have helped those people. You need a training. It's not enough. It's great that you have an experience and you can definitely draw on that, but that doesn't make you an expert because what worked for you might not work for, for other people. And there are lots of different eating disorders. You know, I had one. What about all the others? Yeah, for sure. I think great points. So Anne, how do you work to find a healthy balance with food and exercise in your life today? Well, in truth, it's not something I work actively at anymore. It's just, I think it just happens now. I think over the years, I've learned what works for my body and what doesn't. And because what doesn't, doesn't make me feel good, I don't do it, I suppose. And I appreciate it sounds probably clear, as clear as mud, but I guess with food, I naturally juggle what I need. So that's the nutritionist in me with what I want. That's me, the person. And I've, I've learned to love what I need. So lots of vegetables, plants, legumes, nuts and seeds, fermented food and good quality protein. That's kind of the nutritionist. But I've also learned to not berate myself for wanting non-nutritious food. It might be pointless for my body to eat ice cream or chocolate or whatever. But I believe it serves a purpose for my heart and my soul, I guess, for my mental health. So, you know, I think those foods are totally fine as well. Provided I don't just eat them. 
you know, if my diet was just ice cream, it wouldn't be great. You know, I hate to say it, but it's, it is about moderation, really. And when it comes to exercise, I think it's probably taken me longer to achieve a balance. I've done it all, it seems, you know, I've done running, I've done the gym, I've done exercise classes, group exercise in the park with men in uniform shouting mm-hmm. at me which worked for me at the time. Yoga, Pilates, ballet, modern dance, I did weights, hitch workout, and probably some more as well. I believe our gut instincts are usually correct. And I started with ballet when I was six, and now that I'm nearing 40, I've gone full circle, and I ended up doing dance and, and yoga, which is not dance, but it's, it's, it's not that dissimilar. So that's all I do now. And that's what works for me. I remember trying yoga in my 20s, but I just didn't get it. I wanted to know that I burned calories and it needed to hurt or I wasn't really interested. Um, whereas now, I think that's not, that's not what I'm after. I think everything in between six and now was more or less aimed at changing my appearance and my body was dance and yoga now are really a celebration of my body I'm not doing it to hurt it. This week I've been really tired and a bit unwell. So I haven't done any yoga because that wouldn't really serve my body. It would sort of go against what it feels. So I need to recover. And when I feel better, I will do it again. That's sort of my philosophy now on exercise. And also I think that exercise doesn't have to be sweating. Um, I view exercise as movements. Uh, you know, going for a bike ride with my kids, going for long walks on Dartmoor is a form of exercise. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It sounds like a much more kind of peaceful and kind of compassionate place, I guess, with your body these days. Yeah, I think that's sort of the beauty of getting older. (laughs) So true. (laughs) But, you know, you get much wiser sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think we can do to support young people growing up to have a better relationship with food and their bodies? Well, I guess it goes back to what I was saying before. I like to see some diversity in the media I think there are too many sort of young, thin, blonde women represented. I'd like to see other types. I'd like to see people who, are, who weigh a bit more, you know, black people, old people, men. You know, I just, I'd like to see more of a variety so that people can identify with others. And going back to what you, talk, what you were talking about, the healthy eating week at school, for me, that needs to change quite dramatically. I think it comes from a good place, but it's always done wrong. And in my opinion, it confuses children. On the one hand, the kids are served in heavy puddings every day for lunch. And we have all sorts of cake sales and school events with sweets and candy floss, etc. And on the other hand, for one week a year, we tell them that they, shouldn't, they should only be eating fruit and vegetables. Otherwise, their teeth will fall out. And I'd like a bit more measure, you know, a measured approach, I think. I don't have a problem with the sweets and the cake sales at all. You know, I'm the first one to be baking. But I have a problem with the way it's presented to children. I think it's really confusing. And I'll tell you another story. My, my son once learned about chocolate for half a term. That was the topic. And then they had to do what they called them an exhibition. So everyone made something out of chocolate. And they were children. They were in year three. So... Of course, everyone made something out of chocolate. They didn't draw chocolate. They made something with chocolate. But then, you know, the parents were invited to look at the, um, at the exhibition. And we were told that under no circumstances should we be eating any of it because we were a healthy eating school. And I got mad. I was thinking, that's madness. You are asking the kids to learn about chocolate, but they're not allowed to eat it. You know, if you didn't want them to eat it, you know, learn about, I don't know, 
trucks or I don't know tortoises or something yeah. you know? and then we have no problem with that and there was this boy you know I think my, my son made truffles I think or I don't know we made something which actually was quite educational because we also made honeycomb and we looked at the chemistry of it and etc but anyway so there was this boy who really wanted to try what my son had made and the teacher was there and so he didn't dare and his mom was there as well and so he took what my son had made and he shoved it in his mouth and I swear to god he practically didn't swallow the thing he or didn't didn't chew the thing he just swallowed it whole and I saw this mm. this little kid kind of swallowing this piece of chocolate whole and, and I remember thinking that's not healthy that's mm. just not healthy at all for the mind it's not right and I was not happy with that so I think it's a really good idea I think they're trying their best and understand budget is, is difficult etc but I think it needs to be done better we need to educate children slightly differently because it can be scaremongering mm. and I think my last point would be I'd like puberty also to be explained to children better I think they they talk about secondary sexual characteristics and periods and that's great but that's not all. I think they need to explain that girls and boys grow differently. No one seems to explain to girls that they will gain weight at puberty, that it is normal. They see boys becoming more muscular and taller suddenly, and girls become rounder, not just because of their breasts, but also their hips and their thighs. And we're supposed to have this fat. We are essentially gearing up for reproduction, like it or not. That's what our body is supposed to do. And in order to make a baby, you need fat. And that's where we store fat. And if you don't explain that to girls, it can be really scary to see the body changing and think that you're becoming fat. And you see all your Instagram or media people on the grid or whatever, really thin and, and athletic. And you think, What's the hell? what the hell? You know, I've got all these bumpy things kind of hanging off and and it's really scary and I'd like that to be explained to girls and I also would like girls to be explained that I don't know I think I'd like puberty to be explained together not separately I think I don't know at least in our schools this they talked about puberty separately and I didn't like that because I thought you know they're going to be going through puberty together if you separate them you know how is that helpful boys need to understand periods and girls need to understand that boys also have feelings and that things are happening also for boys I think it's a really critical moment in life puberty and teenage years and I think we need to be quite open as to what's happening there and not sort of do anything that's secretive because I think it's opening a kind of worms Mm. okay such great thoughts and I think you know really in agreement with you on those things you know particularly kind of like yeah on all those areas I think just really great points there's quite a lot of work to be done still I think isn't there yeah which is demoralizing and exciting I suppose if you can be part of it it's exciting yeah definitely so a final few quick fire questions so what would be your last supper three course meal Oh, that's so hard. I would go with asparagus with like a warm vinaigrette and parmesan shavings for starter, I think. And then I would go for like a Moroccan-inspired like spatchcock chicken. I love North African food, so that's what I would go with. And I would probably have that with a like a herby fatouche. That would be really nice. And for dessert, I'd have to go with lemon because I love lemon. And I would have to go for a lemon tart, very French. 
and maybe a bit of lemon granita on the side just because I can't choose just one thing. But yeah, I also love pizza, I have to say. It's one of my top food and it has to be eaten without cutlery. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Sure. Oh, making me hungry already. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have a favourite quote or mantra? Yes. It's always, what's the worst that can happen? Mm. And I will always use it for my personal life. And sometimes I will tell my clients, I mean, actually quite often, and sometimes it can be terrible what can happen, but most of the time it can't. And I think that's what drives me. When I'm scared, I just think, what's the worst that can happen? And, oh, and I go. Yeah, so true. And tell mm. us something about you that may surprise us. Okay. But I think if people know me from Instagram, they would probably know that I'm quite girly. I'm a real girly girl, I think. But I'm also the DIYer in our house. I do, I'm quite handy with a drill, actually. I've done all sorts of sanding and all sorts of things. And once I got really excited because my husband had bought me new drill bits. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm sure it's a great skill to have, actually, isn't it? You know, having a, you being good at DIY. <laughs> well, it's not always good, you know. I'm very bad at tidying. <laughs> Just saying, if anyone wants to know, I'm terrible at tidying, so I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so, Anne, as well, where can people find you if they want to know more about the work you do and, yes, yeah, to find more about you? Well, I guess you can find me on my website, which is crunchnutrition.co.uk. But I mostly live on Instagram, I have to say. So I'm on Instagram under crunchnutrition. I'm also on Facebook, but not quite as much. I'll probably be there if you send me a message, but I'm mostly on Instagram. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Okay, well, that's, that's great, Anne. And I'll make sure that I'm, you know, I, I linked all of those in the show notes. Thank so I just you. want to say, yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. And I think there's just so many like great points and lots of valuable kind of insight and information in this episode. So appreciate you sharing that so much. No, thank you for having me. It was lovely talking to you as always. And yeah, I hope we can do other things together, I'm sure. And I hope you have a, a lovely day. Okay, brilliant. Okay, take care, Anne. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye. So thank you so much for listening. Do go and check out all of Anne's contact details in the show notes. If you haven't already, do follow me on Instagram at the Food Freedom Coach. And for regular insights and information, do sign up for my weekly articles on my blog page at foodfreedomcoach.co.uk. Thanks again, and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm-hmm.